Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This episode of 17th Century Warfare is brought to you by When Diplomacy Fails on Patreon for $1 a month. You can listen to episodes of the 30 Years War Without Ads and access the scripts that go along with these episodes, complete with references and images to make everything more accessible. Make sure you check out When Diplomacy Fails on Patreon by heading to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails and have a look at the other tiers too. For $2, you can access all of When Diplomacy Fails' weekly episodes without ads and with their scripts attached. And for $5, you can get all of that but also get an hour of extra content every month and listen to the vaunted 1956 series. For this and everything else to do with Patreon, make sure to check out patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails or check out the website wdfpodcast.com and follow the links from there. Either way, enjoy this episode, guys, and thanks for listening.
Sultan Mustafa II had a plan. The date was 1695, and his empire of the Ottomans had been at war with Austria, Venice, and Poland-Lithuania for over a decade. The state coffers were exhausted, a stalemate of sorts had ensued, but this did not matter to Sultan Mustafa II. He would adopt the traditions of his predecessors and lead from the front of his army, as all the great conquering sultans had done before. With his inspirational presence urging the soldiery on, the Ottoman Empire would once more triumph over the heathens that occupied Hungary and portions of the Balkans. Mustafa's plan went against the grain of recent memory. No sultan had led the Ottoman army from the front since the mid-1500s, and no sultan had even accompanied the army since the 1660s. The Ottoman palace was full of courtiers and elites that wished to keep it that way, and to monopolise any vestiges of power for themselves. Mustafa had several of them executed, and he turned his full attention to the resurrection of the Ottoman war effort under his name. It was as he planned on such a grand ambitious scale that Mustafa was paid a visit by an unusual guest. The man was a Greek Orthodox Christian who claimed that he had converted to Islam in secret and that the Prophet and Mustafa's father Mehmed IV had visited him in a dream. They had imparted some words to this Greek man and he wished to share them with Mustafa at once. Mustafa would never have allowed it, but apparently the vizier had heard the man's story and believed that what he had to say was worth the sultan's time. So the Greek convert was brought before the sultan and asked to repeat what he had said. Skipping the less exciting parts, the Greek revealed the part of his dream which would most interest the sultan. According to his dream, Mustafa's late father has said the following. Go ye to my son Mustafa, you will be superbly rewarded. Whatever you hear and see here, you should convey and tell him. Inshallah, your sultanate will endure for a very long period. With the aid of the enduring truth, during your reign, many an enemy domain will be conquered and recovered. What a coincidence. The Greek's dream was just what Mustafa had wanted to hear. For the next two years, he met with some moderate successes, until he led over 50,000 of his men to the worst Ottoman defeat in living memory, at the Battle of Zenta on the Hungarian plains. So decisive was the defeat that Prince Eugene of Savoy, the commander of the Habsburg German-Hungarian Allied Army that had beaten the Ottomans, was able to write home to his emperor and make the following jubilant pronouncement, saying, This victorious action drew to a close with the day itself. It was as though the sun decided not to set until it could see and cast its rays on the triumph of your majesty's armies. A triumph indeed, for the Turks were shortly thereafter forced to the peace table, as the Allies seized Sarajevo and forced Mustafa's armies out of much of Hungary. Sultan Mustafa II became utterly despondent after the loss. His initial enthusiasm for command apparently was sucked out of him with the totality of his defeat. During the Peace of Karlowitz, two years after the Battle of Zenta in 1699, the Ottomans closed out the 17th century by reaching a watershed moment of the worst kind. Eugene of Savoy, one of the great tacticians of the age, had so shattered the Ottoman ability to resist that the Ottoman peacemakers gave formal recognition to the territories that they were forced to hand over to the Allies, which included portions of the Balkans, of the Ukraine and some Greek islands. 
With the triumph of Eugene, the military preponderance of the West over the East appeared confirmed. Certainly there would be cause for celebration, but even as the Ottomans were by no means defeated, and actually took back some territories which they had lost in the subsequent decades, the Ottoman Turks would never seriously threaten Western Europe again. Western Europe had arrived, in a process which was neatly marked by the arrival of the 1700s and the 18th century the following year. From now on, Europe would become the centre of the world, and enlightenment, overseas expansion, economic booms, countless conflicts, imperialism on a grand scale, and technological advancement would follow. Yet, all of these things, all of the progress and benefit which came from them, were the result of war. Europe would shape the history of mankind as we know it for the next two centuries, and its central importance to that history has profoundly shaped how we see ourselves and how we think of others. But again, this supremacy and all of the influence came as the result of a successful war. The destruction of the Ottoman army at Zenta and the demoralisation of Sultan Mustafa II may have marked the occasion with an exclamation point, but the military revolution had been building for some time. In this mini-series, while we're not going to go right up to the Peace of Karlowitz in 1699, we are going to explain how Europe was positioned to supersede the Ottomans, in the turn of the 18th century. Europe had torn itself to shreds in the first half of the 1600s, and from these bitter experiences much had been learned. The West had graduated, it seemed, from the School of Hard Knocks, and learned the lessons that the preceding years of the century had instilled within it. These lessons were a long time in the learning, and involved a fundamental transformation of society, and of attitudes to war, as well as how war was paid for, organised, and of course, what weapons were used. With the 1600s as our lens then, and the Thirty Years' War as our focal point, for the next 12 episodes, I will be your guide for warfare in this warfare-filled century. This episode here, in particular, is tasked with introducing us to the feudal system, which the musket and several other factors helped to replace, as much as it is tasked with looking how significant a change this replacement represented and what it meant for the king, emperor, or soldier on the ground. Expect talks of knights, of obligation to your lord, and of the increasing expense of war and the need for organisation. As a mini-series associated with the Thirty Years' War, this episode may well appear as though we're as far removed as possible from that conflict, but I wanted to provide a good background into the warfare that had developed by the 17th century, as much as I wanted to introduce us to the military revolution, which is the name given to the transformation of European warfare and society, thanks largely to military technology and the adoption of military drills. In the next episode we'll be looking at how the English swapped the longbow for the musket, a very fascinating story in of itself, but in this episode the societal elements will come under our microscope, but I promise it's more interesting than it sounds. We know that war changed human history, and that its impact cannot be done justice to in a few podcast episodes. Yet it's easy sometimes to gloss over the fact that, as war became more technologically advanced, the impact of war on humankind dramatically increased. The scale of warfare, the nature of what it could achieve, the constant onus on the leading figures to improve, the fear of being left behind in the race, the stunning transformations in how war changed, and what this looked like on the battlefield as much as what it looked like in society, these are all aspects of a thesis developed in the 1950s called the Military Revolution. 
The Military Revolution is something we're going to become quite familiar with during our mini-series, not least because it provides us with a really useful lens through which we can examine so many previously understudied parts of the puzzle. The military drill, the emergence of mass volley musket tactics, the development of more advanced fortifications known as the Trace Italienne, the growth of armies, the development of military bureaucracies to equip and control these armies, the question of whether this granted the West a superiority overall, all of these are issues which the military revolution covers, and I can't wait to investigate them in more detail. The military revolution is a big part of why the Thirty Years' War is so fascinating and important in the historiography of early modern Europe, and has been examined in the context of several different states, as we'll see in later episodes. In the next few episodes we'll become better acquainted with exactly what the military revolution was, but don't be afraid of it. I promise it's actually quite interesting, and in this episode we'll see what came before it. How did European armies go from valuing knights on horseback above all to favouring mass volleys of musket fire? What impact did this have on the capabilities of European states and on their ability to defeat their enemies? What impact did it have on society as a whole? The origins to these answers are rooted within this episode here, so let's find them as I take you to the battlefield of the late Middle Ages. Before we get into the latest episode of 17th Century Warfare, guys, I just wanted to talk to you about something very exciting. My book on the Thirty Years' War, called For God or the Devil, A History of the Thirty Years' War. You may or may not be interested to know that the Thirty Years' War series that I'm doing is based upon this book, and the book is based upon this series and vice versa. In other words, if you would like to read along, if you would like to follow along with what we're doing in this series, but you'd like to read instead of listen, then do pre-order this book from our website. Go to wdfpodcast.com forward slash shop, and you can find it there. Ordering this book off the website is by far the best way to go about things because the money goes directly to me. I can personalize the book when I'm sending it to you and sign it for you. And I'll also throw in a free When Diplomacy Fails bottle opener. So what more could you want? By buying this book from the website, you'll be supporting me directly and I really, really appreciate it. But you'll also be landing yourself a rather large book. I estimate that this book will be coming in at about 500 pages at the very least, considering all the content that we'll have to pack into it. But if large books are your thing and you love the Thirty Years' War, then make sure to check out this book. Simply follow the link in the description of this episode, and you'll find it there. Thanks, guys, and enjoy this episode. It is often taken for granted that European states went from feudal societies, dependent upon the whims and loyalties of their local lord, to organised, industrialised, militarised societies, capable of fielding and paying for a professional standing army, and kitting it out with the latest in weaponry, supplying it for long periods of time, and equipping its leaders with the best in military theory and tactics. Because such developments happened, it's easy to forget that in the space of a few hundred years, everything changed where warfare on the continent was concerned. Not only what weapons Europeans used, but also how their rulers went about summoning the men for battle, and what the reduction in the importance of some units, and the increase in importance of some others, actually meant for European society, are facts that are easy to gloss over when we look at the bigger picture. 
Yet even while we look at the bigger picture, we're faced with some unanswerable questions. How did the infantry become so important, at the expense of the knight and the social status he enjoyed? What made certain military leaders so incredibly effective? How do we explain the success of men like Gustavus Adolphus, Ambrogio Spignola, or Count Tilly, or Maurice of Nassau? How do we explain how a man like Ernst of Mansfield never won a convincing victory, yet was constantly in the employ of Europe's most influential potentates solely because of his knack for raising an army? Most of us would know the names of some important battles in the Thirty Years' War. Breitenfeld in 1631, which established Swedish military power, Rocroi in 1643, which did the same for the French, and even before that, the Battle of Luther in 1626, which saw the Catholic Habsburg forces right their Danish-German opponents. Yet, unless we can properly get to grips with what these battlefields looked like, and what the soldier actually went through, we will always be disconnected from the events, and the weight of these victories, as much as the weight of other defeats, will be felt far less. For the sake of clarity, it is worth noting that gunpowder weapons became rapidly more common following the Italian Wars of the 1490s. From that point, the usage of the musket in its primitive form greatly increased, as did the military theory and tactics to go along with its most effective employment on the battlefield. Of course, a cannon had already made its presence felt before that time, and Europeans had experimented with cannons of varying sizes and practicality since the 1300s, with the Ottomans famously making use of enormous cannons to break down Constantinople's mighty walls in 1453. Yet it was the usage of the musket in league with the cannon that so transformed European warfare and society as one, and the transformation deserves explanation. To make our point, we're going to use the case study of England in the 14th and 15th centuries as a means of demonstrating the feudal system in action, and how it responded to change and adapted accordingly. So let's begin. In the Middle Ages, a war was as much a clash between states as it was a private affair between kings. Above all, of course, war was an expensive and immensely complex act, and it shouldn't surprise us to learn that since the sinews of war were money, the pursuit of money by the kings that led their state into war became a full-time occupation as important as organising the troops and stores. Even while wars could be considered a private affair, they had to be paid for and supplied with manpower by the king's public subjects. Considering this and the fact that in England, for example, the crown's revenues alone would never be sufficient to pay for the war, the development of the parliamentary system becomes a great deal easier to understand. Think about it. For a king to make war he needs money and the manpower commitments from his lords. Since the king alone had less actual power than the sum, the total sum of his lords and nobles, it was necessary to summon these figures in order to press them for these resources. According to the feudal system, as a knight you owed your king military service, in return for the protection he granted to you and the legitimization he granted to your position. The nobility were not always knights, because to be a knight meant to distinguish oneself in battle or in a tournament, and to be knighted by the king. Once this immense honour was bestowed upon you, you became a member of a privileged brotherhood with its own rights, reputation, creed and code of chivalry to uphold. As a knight, you were expected to equip yourself for battle with the finest arms, armour and steed, which was, naturally, an immensely expensive process. Free knights were logically the richest knights, but knights in service to a lord or noble were also common, and could be a great way for the wealthier magnates in the land 
to demonstrate their prowess and influence. The magnate could travel throughout the land accompanied by his knights, and he could display his power through demonstrations of pomp and ceremonials. Some knights bypassed the expense of the creed by pledging their service to one who could afford to equip and house them, such as the aforementioned wealthy magnate. They served as tenants when not at war. They could also serve as the household knights of the king, and they were obliged to come running when their master called. In return, they received all the honours of a knightly service, without the expense, and they were also a handy way for the wealthier magnates of the land to raise an army quickly for the king, or even against the king if it came to that. If said magnate had 30 knights in his service, for instance, and magnates B and C down the road had similar numbers, then a well-armed battle force of a 100 or so men on horseback could be mobilised and brought to bear in very quick time. Such results were invaluable, and when multiplied tenfold across the realm, one imagines the sight of the gleaming armour and proud, swaggering elite of the armed forces preparing for campaign. This contract between magnate and the knights in his service was then extended to the king. The king was the head of the feudal system, and the magnate, noble and lord, was obliged to provide him with the men at his disposal. In practice, of course, things didn't always work out this way, but feudalism remained a paramount part of English life in the Middle Ages, as the system was perfected and sharpened with the passage of wars and the increasing demands made by kings upon their lords. But let's not get ahead of ourselves here. With the king's increasing needs came opportunities for the noble class in another sphere, that of education. In 13th century England, most knights were illiterate, but this changed ever so gradually as knights became more interested in organisation and administration for their local lord or their king. To advance in such a society and to further the interests of the kingly brotherhood, of which you are a proud member, you had to be able to read and to write Latin. The best way to teach knights such valuable lessons was to establish universities and grammar schools across the country. And this was advanced with the additional needs of the government's bureaucracy and the merchant class. How do we teach these people to do their jobs more effectively? Well, we train them and educate them, provide them with an education that will grant them an understanding of the French and English language for diplomacy and lawmaking as much as for later developments in art and theatre. The improvements and availability of education to those in a position to pay for it granted fresh opportunities to the knightly and noble classes which hadn't existed before. It spearheaded the transformation of knights from a military caste above all into one equally concerned with administration, good governance and simple societal advancement. It also made the subsequent developments in musket technology and the reduction in the training and military qualifications of the soldier with the adoption of gunpowder weapons far easier to adapt to. Look at it this way. If the peasantry were to fill the armies, then that was fine. The knights would organise and mobilise these armies, they would arrange for the equipping and direction of these armies, and they would foot the bill for their king. Like we said before, the traditions of feudalism meant that you were obliged to provide these peasants to your king as much as yourself, and equip them as you had done for yourself and for your knights in your service. But things were becoming a bit different now. Since warfare would have to depend on the harvest and the fickle whims of mother nature, it was imperative that these armies, made largely up of peasants, were not collected for too long a period at a time, lest the harvest would be uncollected 
the productivity of the land would suffer and food shortages would result. Not to mention, as the lord of your land, your incomes would suffer significantly and plague or banditry could accompany the evils of starvation and want. The feudal system, then, was eroded not by the chafing of numerous peasants and serfs at the bottom of the pyramid, then, but by the advent of developments in education among the privileged classes, which drew them away from war and towards the administrative and bureaucratic positions wherein more power and influence could be amassed, without risking one's life. At the same time, as this transformation was underway in English society, the development of military technology had also reduced the military potency of the knight on horseback, and simultaneously provided new opportunities for the peasant, who could fire a musket with a few weeks' training, and inflict as much damage as a knight after a lifetime of service. To make muskets more damaging, of course, you needed more of them, and it just so happened that many peasants would rather serve in your armies than be resigned to the drudgery of agricultural life. Like we mentioned, as military technology became more advanced and rendered those heavily armoured knights effectively obsolete, these knights learned that they could further their interests by working within the organs of the state, and by organising these organs in the name of the king rather than always fighting directly for him. The availability of peasants for the army meant that, by and large, the military service of the knight was no longer as important as it had once been. In addition, the old feudal traditions meant that you still owed your king allegiance, but since your horse and lance were less effective instruments of war, you transferred this allegiance from the battlefield to the king's administration. Rather than moving those knights in your service from point A to point B, it was now more important that you arranged hundreds sometimes thousands of men, and that these men were equipped in time. These feats of logistics put the feudal contract under immense strain, because the peasants often couldn't afford to equip and feed themselves in battle, and the knights or lords sometimes couldn't afford to equip them all either, which forced the lord to fit the bill, since the king had nowhere near enough resources to pay what amounted to a series of private armies popping up across his realm, let alone to pay for and maintain a standing army, especially when the employment of peasants would detract from the agricultural productivity of the land, and thus the income from that land, so long as the peasant's service was required. As the complexities of war developed and its demands became more numerous and expensive, the king had greater need of men like you, who understood how warfare worked and who could arrange the state's resources accordingly. Consider, for example, how taxing the demands of the Hundred Years' War with France must have been in comparison to the lesser Anglo-French wars that had preceded that hulkingly long war. Yet this state was still very much bound by the old feudal system, and this meant that you, as a loyal noble in service to the king, possessed a great deal of lands and monies and held in your charge a large pool of men in feudal service, who worked on your estates. There were many men exactly like you in the kingdom, and when the king wanted something, it was necessary for him to summon you and ask for it, so that all, collectively, knew what was needed, and what the king wanted to do. Since the king couldn't very well organise an entire war by himself, this process enabled men like you to bring the king's vision to fruition, and to provide the men and money necessary to make it happen. Unsurprisingly, being in this position meant that you had leverage over the king, and while you would never take advantage of this position against his majesty, you could expect for yourself some concessions in return. If we're still taking the example of England, then these concessions developed significantly as time went on, but this model was also followed extensively in Poland, for instance, 
or the need to reunite the Polish state after a period of disunity and chaos necessitated the King of Poland to keep everyone on the same page and encourage cooperation. What better way to encourage cooperation than to give the nobles what they wanted, which was normally something along the lines of a desire for more power, influence and prerogatives in the state. Consider also the relevant example of the Holy Roman Empire, where the contract between emperor and prince mirrored that of English king and lord. The confusion inherent in the imperial system was such that even while this contract was apparently feudal, the English equivalent of lords in Germany sometimes had the power to defy their emperor altogether, and when combined with the religious factor from the 1500s, the contract was only further complicated. To take us back to England, though, it was plain that in the 14th and 15th century, the English lord was now doing more than just fitting the bill. He was also taking on an immense risk, and in return he would surely be entitled to ask for something. Maybe he wanted more influence in his lands, perhaps he desired advancement and influence for his family. It could even happen that in return for raising these forces, the Lord would request that he be given command of them as they distinguished themselves in battle, like a kind of legacy of the knightly service once provided by the increasingly pacific warrior caste. Now that the knight and his sons were privileged, educated members of the nobility, it was only natural that families sought influence away from the battlefield and within society itself, leading to intrigues sometimes more deadly than those they had undertaken in war. The historian Peter Reed noted that This development in education amongst the knightly class as one of the factors that gradually changed them from a military elite ready at all times to answer the call of their lord to war to a group more interested in national and local government as a means to honour and power. For the knight, the sword, while still available, was gradually replaced by the pen. Countless other demands could of course follow, but in the English case, to take that as our example, the results bore fruit which would develop in time to the parliamentary democracy and constitutional monarchy of later years. That said, there was no sudden abandonment of the old ways, since nobody was born a knight, to be knighted was, in, and in some respects remains, a distinction of much honour and was keenly sought after. Then, as now though, it became possible to acquire a knighthood not just through battle, but also through distinguished or important service to the king. The king remained critical as a fulcrum of the state's powers, in addition to his position as a fount of patronage and honours. It was up to the king to grant titles, to sell off his land, to award those in his service with honours, etc. These nuggets were highly sought after even still, and when combined with tradition it meant that ideas of knightly service, twinned of course with a romantic nostalgia for the old ways, never truly vanished, even if they became far less important in English society and on the battlefield. Knighthood, much like the organisation and financing of war between the 14th and 15th centuries, was a constantly changing and evolving system which lacks defining watershed moments or sudden breaks with the past. Because warfare dominated this period in English history, with the 100 Years' War on one end and the War of the Roses on the other, the English model stood out to me as a great illustration of how warfare fundamentally altered society. Warfare instilled a sense of urgency and a desire for convenience. Thus, even while Parliament would not be called on every occasion, the King's need to converse with some of his closest advisers in secret, and the very need in the first place for advisers to help smooth the process along, led to the creation of 
Privy Councils. After close discussion with the Privy Council, it was then that the King's decisions were put to the Council of Ministers or the Parliament, which were both comprised of the most important lords and nobles of the land. Warfare changed the contract between King and Parliament during the 14th and 15th centuries because it became so all-consuming and eye-wateringly expensive. King Henry V may have been a conquering hero in his time, but he depended upon Parliament for the voting of taxation and men, even with his stunning victories at Agincourt and Cressy. Similarly, the Holy Roman Emperor required the permission of the imperial diet if he wished to raise a new tax, make war or issue the imperial ban against a prince. It was in 1418 that England, with a large portion of northern France conquered and under its flag, determined that these conquered territories should pay for the occupation and financial burden of the war. However, in spite of these rulings by Parliament, by 1430, Normandy and conquered France were costing more to England than they were bringing in, and Parliament was increasingly asked to foot the bill. The King of England, like the Holy Roman Emperor, did not have enough incomes of his own to support a war in his name without financial help, and this dependence upon his lords, or in the Holy Roman Emperor's case, his German princes, provided opportunities in both spheres for concessions, which contributed, of course, to the development of the political process. To make a further comparison, the king was entitled to call out what was called the feudal levy, which would have levied all of those who held land direct from the crown into military service. This levy included absolutely everyone, from the knight to the magnate that happened to rent land from the king, and even those spiritual leaders who resided on the royal lands. It was from his lands that the king gained his military power, even if in the English case the king's wealth and military power was often superseded by the combined powers of all of his lords. If we look at the Holy Roman Emperor though, then the situation there was quite similar, even while the results were quite different. Since the emperor was a Habsburg, he drew power and influence from the Habsburg hereditary lands, and these provinces and estates formed the bulk of what would become the Austrian Empire. By 1600, to wear the crown of the Holy Roman Emperor meant that even while you wore a crown which had once commanded the loyalty of all through his powers, you were now reliant on your vassals for aid, which meant that in the narrow definition of what it meant to be emperor, you weren't really an emperor at all. Ferdinand II, an important figure for our Thirty Years War narrative, could not command the obedience of the princes of the empire based on his command alone, as Charlemagne had done. In addition, Ferdinand II could not rule the empire as an absolutist monarch, as the enlightened despots of the 18th and 19th centuries could. Yet he could rule over his own lands, the hereditary lands, as an absolutist, and demand from them what he liked. This had consequences though. The regional assemblies in Austria rose up in revolt against Ferdinand II, and they also did so in Bohemia with infamous consequences, rather than accede to Ferdinand's demanding taxes and repressive religious policies. But so long as Ferdinand, the Holy Roman Emperor, weathered these storms, his lands were his business. The King of England, on the other hand, owned lands, but he could not squeeze them as the Habsburgs could. Strictly speaking, the king could call for the feudal levy and gather those men in his service together. It was more often than not the case, though, that these men who were gathered tended to be insufficient in equipment and training, and they put in an uninspiring performance on the battlefield. As a result of these bare facts, the king was led to approve of a system in the late 1300s which would incorporate contracts of volunteers for a specific period, rather than rely on the inherently less reliable feudal system 
which only summoned men to battle on the basis of their obligation, and in any case could only oblige them to stay in service for 40 days at a time. It was therefore essential that volunteers be recruited to serve in the armed forces, but since the king couldn't afford these recruitment costs, that was where Parliament came in. While on the surface this introduction of contracts may appear like the anticipation of a standing army, the result was less straightforward. Neither the king nor his lords wished to foot the kinds of bills necessary for equipping and maintaining a well-trained professional force of thousands of men, and while some form of training was instituted, it was nowhere near as organised or efficient as we might have expected. There was no clean break with the feudal past, simply because an effort had been made to replace some less practical elements of that system. The volunteers were expected to be somewhat proficient with their weapons, but they could also expect to serve alongside knights, some on horseback and some dismounted, which could be beneficial for morale and the development of their skills. Knights were raised on a diet of jousting, horsemanship and swordsmanship because they had the time and money for such training. This was what had made them such valuable warriors in the first place, and they could pad out the less polished volunteers, and even train them in some cases. Yet, note that the basis of their importance rests on their proficiency and skill with weapons, which took a long time to master, and required much resources to maintain properly. Imagine then if a new weapon came along that allowed even the lowliest volunteer to bypass all these requirements, and be, in theory, as effective a killing machine as those gleaming knights that charged valiantly into battle. With an increased number of educated knights removing themselves from active military service in favour of the military bureaucracy or king's administration, and with a precedent set for a volunteer army based on contract and necessitating the approval of parliament, there was ample room for a significant new development to push the military organisation of the state further into the modern era. When muskets first appeared on the battlefield in their most primitive form in the 1410s, there was little indication that this unwieldy, dangerous, noisy and expensive implement would become the most important weapon of war in the future. More than that, muskets and their descendants would engender something more than innovation and discovery. They would help bridge the gap from one era to the other, from the Middle Ages to early modern Europe, as the feudal system and its traditions, assumptions and lessons would be upended by the military revolution. Now that we've hopefully given you guys a good grounding in what came before, in the next episode we'll examine this military revolution and what it looked like by sticking with the English example and asking what the process of England swapping longbows for muskets looked like and why it was only fully completed in 1595. I hope you'll join me for that, but until next time, my name is Zach and you've been listening to this episode introducing 17th Century Warfare. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.